The Well is a gospel-centered church located in Boulder, Colorado. We exist to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. For more information about The Well, please visit us online at www.boulderwell.org. Welcome. I'm glad everyone's here. If uh, you guys don't know me, I'm Chase. I'm a pastor at The Well. The Well is who is kind of hosting this Christian formation workshop. Uh, we're doing four of these this year. Uh, we had one about a month ago. We had Dr. Dave Moreland, who's also a pastor at Fellowship Denver, a great church in Denver. He came and uh, spoke on the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit. And really what we're trying to do in these workshops, which Dave did well and Scott will do well today, is we're trying to take topics that you may not think are very relevant for your walk with Jesus and, and participation in a church community and show actually that they're very important to how you relationally connect with other, one another and with God. And so today we're talking about church history. Now, church history is a funny topic for a uh, for non-denominational church to be speaking of, uh, but because by declaring ourselves to be non-denominational, we've effectively removed ourselves from a lot of church history. Uh, so it's a little ironic that we'd be doing that, not because we don't appreciate church history. Matt, uh, Matt back there, a pastor at the Well, loves church history, as do I. We learn a lot. I know Matt's studying Calvin right now, and I'm studying Jonathan Edwards, and, and we really glean a lot from church history. And when we study church history, we get to stand on the shoulders of giants, so we get to gain a lot of uh, knowledge and understanding of who God is and enjoyment of him through studying church history. And then in another way, by declaring ourselves to be non-denominational, we're doing exactly what our Protestant brethren have done for uh, 500 years, which is separating ourselves from other people and protesting other denominations. And so, uh, so in some ways, it's very appropriate that we're talking about church history as well. Uh, when, I, when I think of history, I don't know about you, I know for a lot of people when they think about history, they find it uh, boring. Is that fair to say? Uh, some people, if you're here, I would assume you don't, but the reason many people do is because history is oftentimes, they think of just facts and dates and figures, and there's not a lot of tying in together of why that matters today. And when I think of studying church history, I think of it like marriage counseling. When I'm counseling couples, when I'm uh, doing marriage counseling, what I invite them to do is understand their story. Tell me their story. Tell me where they're from, who their parents are, what their family of origin was like. And, and oftentimes what I'm not trying to glean and what I'm not trying to invite them to do is just tell me about what happened. I'm not looking for just events to be recited. I'm looking for an understanding of how those events shaped and formed you as an individual. And the same is true with church history. As we're studying church history, we're examining past events and people and concepts, not so that we can know more or, or so that we can uh, have a list of dates and figures and facts memorized. But we're trying to understand how it shapes our church life today. Because whether you like it or not, the way we understand church history and what happened, what God has done in the history of redemption, affects you deeply in how you view Jesus and how you view his church and how you view yourself and other people. And so that's why we're doing this today, is to help you kind of understand that. And we're doing that specifically this year because we're celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation. And so Dr. Winnig, uh, who is here from Denver Seminary, who actually got his PhD from CU, uh, back in 1994, and so he was, uh, he was there for 10 years, right? Um, he is a professor down at Denver Seminary who Matt and I have both had the pleasure of having and preaching. Uh, I've taken a church history class online with you. You probably didn't know that, but watch you on a computer. Uh, and so we've, we've had a lot of uh, great interaction with Dr. Winnig, and he's really uh, fun in our preaching class. If we have become better preaches, preachers at all, it's because of him. Uh, I wouldn't attribute any errors to him, but but he has really helped us become uh, better preachers in that regard. So um, with that said, will you welcome Dr. Winnick as he shares with us on church pre uh, churches? Hey, thanks so much uh, for being here today. I, I got to tell you the truth. I am impressed with you. I mean, it's Saturday morning. It's bolder. The mall is right over here, and here you are sitting here thinking about what's this thing called church history or what we're going to talk about today with the Reformation. So uh, just from me to you, I want you to know how much I appreciate all of you being here today. It, it warms my heart because I'm a church history geek and, and I just love it. Plus, I love Chase and I love Matt and I just think they're great guys and great pastors. I mean, planting a church in the People's Republic of Boulder and it's working, and you guys are all part of that. God bless you, and I'm just praying that 
the Lord will continue to bless your church. Uh, let me um, begin our time today, and Lord willing, uh, technology is your friend until it is not, um, and it might not be here. Let me talk about church at the well in 2017, and then I'm going to dial us back here to, say, the late 15th, early 16th century. Now, I have not had the privilege of being at the well, but here's my guess is how all of you do church on Sunday. So tomorrow morning, you're going to show up, and there'll be a crowd, and you'll come in, and you'll sit down, and probably, if, if you're a normal evangelical church, an A29 church, you'll have the worship team up front, and they'll do a set of three or four, maybe even five songs, and everybody will participate, and then one of the pastors will get up, or one of the staff will get up, and they'll do some welcome, you know, they'll do some announcements, and then what they do, generally, uh, you know, at least this is true of, of our church and most of the churches I preach in, they have the greeting time, where you stand up and you say hi to somebody around you. I, uh, do you guys do that? At your, you don't do the greeting time at your church. You have, but you quit. Well, it's, a, it's an introvert's nightmare is what it is. So, yeah. So, it, it, anyway, maybe you guys are smart and letting all the introverts off the hook. Well, then after that, you might do another worship song and take the offering. And then one of the pastors will get up and they'll preach from the Bible. And the Bible's in English. Hi, good to see you. And they'll do a, they'll do a 30, 35, maybe, maybe if they're really rolling in the Holy Spirit, a 40-minute sermon. And then they'll have a, a closing song and they'll have a benediction and you'll leave. Is that ballpark kind of where we're at? Yeah, a lot longer sermon. Okay. If, if you were your age and you lived in a late medieval village, let's say in the year 1500, Here's what Sunday morning would have looked like for you. You would have been required, required to get up, and you would have walked through your village, and you would have had to go to church. And the reason you were required to go to church is because it was a Christian society. It's what we call Christendom. Everybody was required to go to church. You didn't have the option. And if you didn't go unless you were sick or something like that, you would get called before the church court eventually, and you'd get fined or some other penance would be imposed on you. Now, when you came into the church, the church building would have been probably about this size, but much, much darker. It would have had some stained glass windows on the side, on each side. And on those stained glass windows, and if any of you here grew up in either a Roman Catholic or an Episcopal background, you'll kind of get this a little bit. But on those stained glass windows would have been scenes that had been painted or created of biblical stories. And as you came into church, you would have also passed by or passed under what we call the rude statuary. The rude statuary is this statue of Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding the dying body of Jesus in her arms. And it would have either been over the entrance to the church or outside the church, but it was to remind you that Mary and Jesus were your redeemers. Now, when you came into church and you would have sat down, if the church was well taken care of by what we call the church wardens, they would have had pews that were set up nicely. And if it wasn't well taken care of, you might have had to stand. Well, as you came in, the priest, if he was there, might have led you, might have led you in some singing. And you may have sang one or two, maybe even three songs, but they would have all been in Latin. And you would have learned the words out of memory, but you would have not understood what they meant. And then following the singing, there would have been this prayer for the dead by the priest. And once again, it probably most likely would have been in Latin, because Latin was the language of the church throughout England and all of Europe. And the prayer for the dead was when you died, according to late medieval theology, when you died... You went to purgatory, which was this great, huge spiritual holding tank on top of hell, but in between heaven. And you would spend thousands of years, as would all the other dead, spend thousands of years in purgatory. And eventually, after you were purged of your sins, by the grace of God, you would eventually make it up to heaven. And so the priest would pray for all the dead in purgatory. And then the climax of the service would have been up on the altar, and on the altar, there would have been the bread and the cup. And what the, the priest would have done was he would have gone up and in Latin, he would have recited some prayers and he would have talked about what was going on in what we would call the Mass. 
And then he would hold up usually the cup and he would dedicate the cup for all the saints. And once again, it would have all been in Latin and you probably would have understood a little bit of the ritual, but you wouldn't have really understood what was going on other than the fact that the priest was trying to communicate that Jesus had been sacrificed once again for you and his blood was in the cup. And you may have been, you may have been invited to come forward and receive the cup. Maybe not. Maybe not. Now, what would you have understood of all that? Well, it's hard to say. Hard to say what you would have understood. One of the things you would have enjoyed, though, was the community of the church. You liked your church because it was part of your village. So you can see that in the early 16th century, church looked very, very different than it looks for you and me today. And the reason why that's so is because of this enormously huge event called the Reformation. Let me ask and answer the question here, why did the Reformation of the 16th century, which was later labeled the Protestant Reformation because the word Protestant came from the word protest. And so eventually, these protesters were called Protestants. Why did the Protestant Reformation occur? Let me give us some of the reasons, not all of the reasons. One of the reasons the Reformation occurred was because of the corruption of the papacy in the late medieval era. From about the middle of the 15th century on up into the 16th century, there was a family, primarily the Borgia family, who got control of the papacy. And the Borgias were enormously corrupt enormously corrupt, and yet they controlled the papacy, and everything they did in terms of the papacy at the very top of the church was designed to enrich themselves and provide for themselves. Just to give you an example here, let me uh, make this concrete. This comes from a book by a favorite historian of mine, William Manchester, who was actually an Americanist, but about 25 years ago he decided to dip into the early modern world and talking about the papacy in the late medieval era. And here's what he said about one of the popes. Rodrigo Lanzo Borgia, to give him his full name, it was Borgia Doms in Spain, had been elevated to the College of Cardinals by Pope Calixtus III, his uncle. That was in 1456. No sooner had he donned his red hat than he removed it, together with the rest of his raiment for a marathon romp with a succession of women whose identity is unknown to us and probably was unknown to him as well. This performance produced a son and two daughters who were later joined when he was in his 40s by another daughter and three more sons. And then Manchester goes on and he says this, once he became Pope Alexander VI, Vatican parties, already wild, grew even wilder. They were costly, but he could afford the lifestyle of Renaissance prince. As vice chancellor of the Roman church, he had amassed enormous wealth. As guests approached the papal palace, they were excited by the spectacle of living statues, naked, gilded young women and men in erotic poses. Flags all around bore the Borgia arms, which appropriately portrayed a red bull rampant on a field of gold. Every party had a theme. One, known to the Romans as the Ballet of Chestnuts, was held on October 30th, 1501. One historian described it this way. After the banquet dishes had been cleared away, the city's 50 most beautiful whores danced with guests, first clothed and then naked. The dancing over the, quote, ballet began with the Pope and two of his children in the best seats. And you thought television evangelists were bad. That was the papacy in the late 15th, early 16th century. So when you get to the early 16th century, one of the things that became widely known was how corrupt the papacy was. But not only that, the lower clergy, meaning bishops and canons in cathedrals who ran cathedrals, and lower clergy were corrupt as well. Here were the problems, what we call pluralism, simony, absenteeism, and ignorance. Pluralism is where a pastor, in this case a priest, would hold more than one parish. So it would be like you were the priest of the well and the priest over here at this church and the priest over here at this church. But see, the thing was, you, unlike video venues today, couldn't be in three places at once on Sunday morning. So if you were at this parish, that meant that you weren't at this parish and you weren't at this parish. Now, once again, friends, keep in mind, keep in mind, keep in mind, 
the priest was integral because without the priest, you can celebrate the Mass. And without celebrating the Mass, you couldn't receive God's grace through the cup or the bread. So you would come to church and you'd kind of hang out. Nothing would be happening because your priest was absent. Simony is a word that we use in church history that comes from that passage in Acts chapter 8 where the gospel is extended up there into Samaria. Lots of great things are going on. And there's that magician up there, Simon Magnus. And he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Peter and John. And, you know, they kind of diss him pretty strong. Well, the word simony means to buy church office. In the late medieval era, all kinds of church offices were being bought and sold, particularly when one family would get control of something and then they would sell it to their relatives. So simony was a problem. And then absenteeism, once again, I talked about that, and then ignorance. Most parish priests in the late 15th, early 16th century were ignorant. And what I mean by that is they were not educated. They knew some of the Latin phrases. They knew how to conduct the Mass. But they had no understanding of Scripture because the Scripture was in Latin and chances were they were not literate in Latin. So they would know some of the Latin phrases. They would know how to conduct the Mass but they couldn't teach the Bible. And where they did have some kind of teaching or preaching, it would be in the vernacular, whether it was French or Spanish or German or English, but they would always probably teach you about the Lord's Prayer, one of the Ten Commandments, and it would be a short homily. In other words, you didn't have a well-educated, well-versed clergy in the vernacular. They were just uneducated. So you've got this church that has a lot of tangles. Maybe the catalytic event, though, in the 16th century, in some ways, was the sale of indulgences. Now, some of you have heard of this. About 300 years before this, the papacy stumbled on this incredible money-making scheme. It was. It was, it was actually unintentionally brilliant. What they did was they began to tell average people in the church that if you would purchase from them an indulgence for a sum of money. And an indulgence was literally a piece of paper like this. And what it would say is that the Pope had thereby guaranteed that your time in purgatory or a relative that you really cared about, their time in purgatory would either be remitted or lessened if you would give the church money. Well, they stumbled on this back in the 13th century. But by the late 15th century, it be become big, big, big business. Well, in the early 16th century, <clears throat> Leo and um, another pope both decided that they wanted to build out St. Peter's in Rome. And to do that, what they had to do was raise enormous sums of money. Well, they already had the mechanism in place, which were the sale of indulgences. So what Julius, the first pope, did, and then he died and Leo became the pope who followed him, they decided that what they would do is they would do this massive sale of indulgences throughout all of Europe in order to raise money for the building of St. Peter's. Well, they would send out their papal legates to all the areas. Well, one of the papal legates they sent out was a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel came up to a portion of what today we call Germany. At the time, it was called Saxony. It was in kind of the northeast part of Germany. And Tetzel was not allowed into Saxony because the elector of Saxony was a guy by the name of Frederick, who eventually became the protector of Martin Luther. And so he wouldn't let Tetzel into Saxony, but Tetzel could go in the, all the areas around Saxony. And what he would do is he would go to parishes, and he would gather all the people together, and he would sell them indulgences. And he had this little mantra that's pretty famous now in terms of Reformation history. As soon as a coin into my coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Well, Martin Luther was the professor at the new university in Saxony called Wittenberg. He was also the pastor of a church right on the edge of Saxony. And he was infuriated that Tetzel came up and was selling these pieces of paper promising freedom from... Purgatory, what he just thought that was horrible religion, false religion, cheap grace. And so what Luther did as both a priest, remember he's a Roman Catholic at this point, and as a professor, was he sat down and he wrote 95 theses detailing why the sale of indulgences were absolutely wrong and bad, 
And then according to tradition, and there's question about whether or not he really, really did this, but according to tradition, on October 31st, 1517, not Halloween, Reformation Day. Don't forget that, okay? And you teach your kids, October 31st comes, we might go trick-or-treating, but we're not celebrating Halloween, we're celebrating Reformation Day, so you should drink beer and celebrate Luther, okay? You should, yeah, it's a great day. So what Luther did was supposedly he went to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and he did something that was kind of common procedure. He nailed his 95 theses to the door for public debate. Now, this takes us to the next thing and I'm going to transition to this, was the advent of the printing press which had happened about 60 years before that. Johann Gutenberg had invented the printing press. Now listen, you've all grown up with this and I've seen it in my lifetime. Significant technology changes everything. Who in here, you know, let's just do a quick survey, who in this room does not possess a smartphone? I'm the only one, I still use my flip phone. Okay, I'm dating myself, okay, I get it, get it, get it. My, I just, so, just so you know, my wife's been getting on me, honey, we gotta get you a new phone, we gotta get you a smartphone, okay, because you're a dummy, okay? <laughs> Well, the printing press changed everything. Prior to that, all pieces of literature, quite literally, had to be copied by hand. This is what I tell my students about the medieval era, which I haven't liked, even though I'm an evangelical to the core. I love the, pro I'm a Protestant. Is that in the Middle Ages, monks copied the Bible by hand. The only reason that you and I today have the Bible, whether it's a hard copy or on your, on your cell phone, is because men, and sometimes women in nunneries, worked in the scriptoria and they copied the scriptures. Well, when Gutenberg invented movable type in the middle of the 15th century, all of a sudden you could mass produce all kinds of things in terms of literature. Now, here was the genius of Martin Luther. He was a great theologian and a great reformer and a great pastor, like all of us a sinner who had his issues. But Luther was a genius, and I mean this. He was a genius when it came to the use of the printing press. He didn't just post his 95 theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg. He also sent them to the printing presses, and they printed out thousands of copies and distributed them throughout Europe, and they ran like crazy. And all of a sudden, explosion took place. And this tiny little pastor, priest, professor, monk in Wittenberg became the foil for the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church over this issue of indulgences. And then, not last or least, the Reformation occurred because of what I want to call, and many historians in all honesty want to call, divine initiative. Now, I happen to know some Roman Catholics, one of whom is a priest, he's a friend of mine, we get together and we have lunch on occasion. And what's interesting about him is he used to be a Protestant. He was an E-free pastor and then became an Anglican and then eventually became a Catholic priest. And I didn't know this, but they have a special little dispensation if you happen to be married with kids that they'll shoehorn you into. Well, he and I get together for lunch about once a year and talk about this. And he knows us really well because he used to be a Protestant. But I also know some scholars who are really strong Roman Catholics. And I've corresponded with them. And they, they don't like what I'm going to share with you. But I want to share this with you because I think it's true. Listen to what Luther said about his Reformation. And then I'm going to give you a quote from Calvin as well, and we'll get to both of them in just a moment. Here's what Luther said. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip, Philip Melanchthon, his right-hand man, and, and Omsdorf, the Word, meaning the Word of God, the Gospel, so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. And then he goes on and says this. God has seized me and is driving me, even leading me on. I'm not the one in control. I want to be at peace, but I'm snatched up and placed in the middle of an uprising. And then Calvin, about 30 years after Luther said that. Here's what Calvin wrote to the Emperor Charles V. The restoration of the church is the work of God and no more depends on the hopes and intentions of men than the resurrection of the dead. 
or any other miracle of the description. It is the will of our Master that His gospel be preached. Let us obey His command and follow where, where, wheresoever He calls. What the success will be is not ours to inquire. In other words, they thought, and I would agree, that the Reformation occurred because God wanted it to occur. Now, let me just do a little caveat over here, okay? Here's something, and I'm speaking pastorally here, not just historically. I didn't grow up in the church, and I became a Christian when I was 19, and then got involved in church world when I was 20, and I, I love the church. It just met so many needs in my life. But here's one of the things I like about Christianity. I've read a lot of church history at this point in my life. Church history is filled with ups and downs, ins and outs. It's got some really bad sides to it. It's got some upsides to it. And, you know, it's kind of a reflection of humanity and God doing some great stuff. But here's the great thing about the gospel and about the church and about Christianity. It has a self-correcting mechanism. It's the gospel. The gospel self-corrects us individually and it self-corrects the church. So even when the church starts to go off the rails, and sometimes it has, and it probably will at some point in the future, should the Lord tarry, the, the Lord will use the gospel to bring it back and get it going back on the right way. So if and when, friends, and I mean this sincerely, and I mean this as a pastor, not just as somebody talking about church history, if and when you get discouraged about the nature of the church or things go wrong or mad or chase, maybe do something that you don't totally agree with, I get it, get it, get it. I've been a pastor. I've sat in church. Remember, the Lord's in charge of his church. He will set it right. He'll set it right. So, yeah, we can get discouraged, but I don't want you to think Christianity is not true because the church gets jacked up sometimes. The church is filled with sinners. Of course it's going to get jacked but it's God's church, and he's doing some great things. Okay, enough preaching. Let me move on. <clears throat> Let me talk about the four main streams of the Reformation here, and I'm going to run through these fairly quickly. As time went on and Protestantism broke out all across Europe, it eventually broke into four main streams or rivers, and they all had some distinctions. Let me talk about each of these for just a couple of minutes. The first mainstream, and probably the most prominent early on, was Luther and the development of Lutheranism. As I said, it was centered in Saxony and other parts of Germany. The Lutheran portion of the Reformation was rooted in Luther's now Protestant doctrine. Luther was eventually invited to a debate with a Catholic scholar, Johann Eck, in 1519. And Eck was actually a really great debater. He was one of the papal legates. And Eck eventually kind of cornered Luther theologically and told him at one point in the debate, you sound just like John Huss, and you know what happened to him. He was burned 100 years before as a heretic. And Luther said, I am not like John Huss. And then they took a lunch break. Well, they were in this, this university city called Leipzig, and they had all the records on file from the Council of Constance where Husk was uh, basically uh, held in trial and then burned. And so after lunch, Luther goes over and he looks up the records and he's reading through Huss's testimony. It's all in Latin, and he's fluent Latin, he's reading through it, and he goes, Oh no! I do sound like Huss! Well, the diet ends, and then he goes back to Saxony, and then he becomes the enemy of the papacy. And eventually, two years later, they call him at the Diet of Worms, another gathering of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles I, and all the worldly powers that Luther faced. And they're at the Diet of Worms in April of 1521. Luther makes his famous stand, less convinced by conscience and scripture, I cannot and I will not do otherwise. God help me, here I stand. Amen. And that's really kind of Luther's you know, greatest moment. Well, what Luther did was he changed the doctrine. He changed the theology. He got rid of medieval Catholicism, which he thought was false religion, and he replaced it with what he thought was true biblical doctrine. But here's what I want us to know. The church services, he didn't change too much. Luther loved music, loved it, loved it, loved it. And so he kept kind of the service the same, except they got rid of the Mass, and he replaced it with preaching, and they still had the Lord's Supper, which he defined not as transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine where the bread and the cup literally become the body and blood of Christ, and that freaks me out, but Roman Catholics want to argue that. And Luther changed it to what he called consubstantiation, and I've read what he wrote on that, and I've read the interpretations of that, and in all honesty, I still don't get it. Okay, So you go into a Lutheran church even today, 
And it kind of feels like if you've ever been to a Catholic church, in some ways like a Catholic church, except they don't do the Mass, and they have preaching, and generally, if they're somewhat evangelical, they'll preach from the Bible. So that's what Luther did. Now, one other thing that Luther did, he did many, many things. Luther is a scholar unto his, I mean, uh, a scholarly industry. In fact, there's been all these biographies just come out this year on Luther. I mean, you could spend literally your life studying Luther. But one of the other things he did that was huge was he overturned the medieval emphasis on celibacy. In the Middle Ages, if you were really godly and really committed, you became a monk or a nun. Now, I have, a, I have an empathetic bone for that in my, my heart because I was single most of my adult life. So I get singleness. And if you're single here today, God bless you. The Lord can really, really use you. Not God doesn't call everybody to be married. You know, I just met my wife about 14 years ago, and after she stiff-armed me for four years, I finally put the full-court press on and won her over. Yeah. <laughs> It's true, and if you met her, you'd love her. Everybody loves my wife. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. But I was single most of my adult life, so I don't think there's anything wrong with being single. All of that to say, Luther was single, and then when he was 42, he married Catherine von Bora, who was a former nun, and they were emptying out nunneries just like they were emptying out monasteries, getting rid of them because that was part of the old Roman system. And Luther and Katie got married. Just, just to make some points here, about Luther and Katie. They had an incredibly interesting marriage. She was a force in her own right. Let me give you just a couple of quotes here. Luther's so quotable. Once Luther told a visiting Englishman that he should learn German from Luther's wife Katie because she was the more fluent, indeed, quote, the most eloquent speaker of the German language. On more than one public occasion, Luther described Katie as his Lord. I am an inferior Lord, he would say. She the superior. I am Aaron. She is my Moses. He bore her outspoken criticism of his poor business instincts with respect and good humor. Once he concluded, if I can survive the wrath of the devil in my sinful conscience, I can withstand the anger of Catherine von Bora. Just a couple of other quotes, because Luther is so quotable, and I, and I love him so much because... He's the one, really, who more than any other individual in the Reformation really drove home the issue of marriage and family. Um, <clears throat> once he said this, there's a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow that were not there before. Then later on, probably when he and Kathy had a fight, he said this, if I should ever marry again, I would hew myself an obedient wife out of stone. Okay. <laughs> Now, this one, I, I'm saying this to myself, but to all of you in here, men and women who are married, but listen to this. This is true. Of course the Christian should love his wife. He's supposed to love his neighbor, and since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. Now, I like this next quote. This is great. This is classic Luther, because he's telling you what he thinks, and then he's, he's going to dish you if you disagree with him. The purpose of marriage is not pleasure and ease but the procreation and education of children and the support of a family. People who do not like children are swine, dunces, and blockheads, not worthy to be called men and women because they despise the blessing of God, the creator and author of marriage. <laughs> Classic Luther. And then finally, in domestic affairs, I defer to Katie, otherwise I'm led by the Holy Spirit. So, <laughs> Classic Luther. Luther's just great. Like I said, you could spend your life studying him. Uh, the next phase or stream of the Reformation was what we call the Reformed tradition. Uh, it was centered in Geneva, Switzerland, Zurich, Switzerland, and other parts of Switzerland and Germany, such as Strasbourg. Um, the emphasis within this tradition was on true doctrine and teaching and preaching the Bible. Uh, this is the picture of probably the most prominent of the reformers in this tradition, John Calvin, although there were many others. And uh, worship was far less liturgical and visual than in the Lutheran tradition. In other words, what drove this stream of the Reformation, and I'll come back and talk about the well because this is the stream that you are in and that I am in, is really the preaching and teaching of the Bible. Just, just to make the point, um, Calvin, who was called to Geneva in 1536 and 
he and another guy, uh, GME Farrell, tried to reform the city from 1536 to 1538, and they tried to do too much too fast. And they got kicked out by the city council because the city council ran the city. So Calvin leaves Geneva, and he goes up to Strasbourg, which was on the border between Germany and France, and he spends the next three years there. And he later, and he was pastoring, the, he was, Calvin was French, and he was pastoring a French expatriate congregation up there and married and said it was the best time of his life. But then the city council of Geneva called him back. Well, this time he, he's, he's kind of bargaining from a, a, a position of strength. And so he made all these demands on the city council. In other words, if I come back and I implement reform, you're going to do what I say in terms of the way I'm running the church. You guys run the city, I'm running the church. And he got some other concessions from them, which, by the way, one of the concessions he got from them being French was he got the best wine cellar in all of Geneva. Yeah, because he loved wine. And by all accounts, it was the best wine cellar. So anyway, he comes back and he implements reform. But reform for Calvin, and Calvin was a pastor, and this is what people forget about him. And the other thing is, I'll just mention a quick biography here. Bruce Gordon came out with a biography of Calvin back in 2009. I've read, I think, four or five biographies of Calvin now. It's by far and away the best. And the reason why is because he tells us about Calvin the man, Calvin the pastor. Calvin, the individual who suffered an enormous amount in his life. But one of the things Calvin was great at was preaching and teaching the Bible. Just to give you a feel for his preaching ministry. He began his exposition of the book of Acts in August of 1549 and finished it in March of 1554. If that doesn't astound you or impress you, consider this sermon summary. 46 sermons on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 186 sermons on 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 86 sermons on the pastoral epistles, 43 sermons on Galatians, 48 on Ephesians, 159 on Job, 353 on Deuteronomy, and the list goes on. Theodore Beza was one of Calvin's key followers, and here's what he said. He reported that in 1561, just three years before Calvin died, and his health was not good. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have aspirin. I got to tell you the truth. I can't imagine life without aspirin. Yeah, I would have been dead a long time ago. But anyway, here's the deal. A thousand people came to the cathedral every time Calvin preached. Now, they were required to go to church on Sunday, but not midweek. And he would preach midweek in the cathedral, and people would show up, even though they didn't have to be there, because Calvin preached with enormous vitality. His messages bristled with exegetical insight and piercing application. Plus, he had the ability to get your attention. I mean, on one occasion, just to make the point, he got really mad at the city council and some of the city authorities for what he thought were some really bad decisions that hurt people morally and hurt them spiritually. And so from the pulpit, he referred to them as gargoyle monkeys who had become so proud they vomit forth their blasphemies of supreme decrees. Now, you might not like that language, and I don't like that language, and it sounds like something that a friend of ours might occasionally tweet out, but okay... But ha having said that, it gets your attention. In other words, he knew how to communicate. Now, I don't want to get stuck here because we've got a lot to cover, so let me run through the other traditions, and then I'll try to show us the importance of the Reformation. The third main tradition of the Reformation was what we call the Anabaptist element. The main figure in the Anabaptist element was Mano Simons, let me quickly describe this. The Anabaptist tradition came out of some of the followers of Ulrich Zwingli, who was the main reform pastor in Zurich. And Zwingli was implementing reform in this former Roman Catholic city, and it was all about the Bible. And there were a small group of Zwingli's followers who studied the New Testament, and they came to the conclusion from studying the New Testament. Two things. Many things, but two primary ones. Number one, the idea of infant baptism, where everybody in, in medieval Christendom was baptized as an infant, we could go into the history of that, they said, that's not biblical. That's not what the early church did. They only baptized people on the basis of expression of faith, confession of faith in Jesus as Savior. This idea of infant baptism, that, that's unbiblical. And the second thing is, you have to understand, and we don't have time to go into the background of this, but it was a Christian society where church and state were mingled together and had been, since the time of Charlemagne in 800. And they said, that's wrong. The New Testament, the church is a gathered body. It's separated out from the rest of society. 
So what happened was the Anabaptist tradition became incredibly radical. I'm not trying to defend this. I'm simply trying to explicate it. And that is, they were viewed in their day and their time as undermining the foundations of the society that they were part of because they wanted the church separated from the state and they didn't believe in infant baptism. And so eventually, while there were, it, it spread into a lot of different groups, some orthodox, some heretical, it was vehemently persecuted by Protestants and Catholics alike. Mano Simons was the guy that saved the Anabaptist tradition. He eventually gathered thousands of Anabaptists who survived all the persecutions and then took them to what today we call Eastern Europe, where they eventually found sanctuary. Some of you in here may have come out of this tradition. I have friends, I have colleagues on the faculty of Denver Seminary, this is their tradition. So that's a third tradition of the Reformation. And then the fourth is the Reformation in England. And this is a picture of Thomas Cranmer. Let me run through this quickly. The Reformation in England originated with the desire of King Henry VIII to have a male heir. Uh, Mary, uh, Henry was married to a woman by the name of Catherine of Aragon. She was a princess from Spain, and she was brought to England when she was a young woman to marry Henry's older brother, Arthur. Well, Arthur got sick and died, and there were questions about whether the marriage was ever consummated. And so in order to maintain the political alliance between England and Spain, Henry told the Spanish crown, I'll marry Catherine to my younger son, Henry VIII. They got married. She was seven years older than him. They had one daughter, the Princess Mary. Well, eventually, Catherine got pregnant about three other times, but she kept having miscarriages, and then she passed the age of, of being able to get, you know, get pregnant and, and give birth. And two things were going on here. A hundred years before this, England had undergone a really, really serious civil war. Nobody wanted that to happen again. And number two, a woman, apart from in the 11th century by the name of Queen Maud, a woman had never sat on the throne of England. And so the idea of going to civil war terrified everybody. So Henry wanted a male heir who would succeed him on the throne. And let's tell the truth, the other thing was he was, as one historian said, in the prime of lusty manhood. Well, he was. And he was incredibly, let's put it this way, if he were around today, he would have been put in prison for sexual harassment, okay? But he was the king, he could do what he wanted. He always had an eye for all the maids at court. Well, anyway, what happened was he eventually, to make a long, complicated story politically and morally and everything else short, he divorced Catherine, got Anne Boleyn pregnant, married Anne, and then what happened was he couldn't get a papal dispensation for his divorce and his remarriage. So he went to Parliament and said, we're going to make the Church of England separate from the papacy. So by parliamentary act or parliamentary statute, they pulled England out from underneath the papacy. It's been a Roman Catholic country since the 7th century. I mean, for hundreds of years, they've been a Catholic country. And now he set himself up as the head of the church. Well, he appointed Thomas Cranmer to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. And what, and what Cranmer did over the next, as I put here, 24 years, was Cranmer, who was originally Roman Catholic, but became Protestant. Cranmer slowly, but surely, pushed the Church of England in the Protestant direction. He was very deliberate, very slow, but eventually through a series of upheavals, England became Protestant. And I don't have time to go into all the details, although I'd love to because, see, this is my research field and I love this. Plus, it's a total soap opera. Okay? Well, it, well, it is. It is. But Puritanism arose in the 1560s, and Puritanism was a movement of certain clergy within England and certain laity within England who said, the Church of England still looks and feels too papal. Got to get rid of all this Romish practices. And so they wanted to purify the Church of England. Well, they eventually ran afoul of Queen Elizabeth, and I'll get to that eventually. And then the church eventually became what, what we today call Anglican in England, Episcopal in the United States. And I put down here, it's bells and smells. And I'll come back and talk about that. Two main contributions of the Protestant Reformation. Let me run through these quickly, and then we'll take a break and do some Q&A. The first main one are the five solas. If you're a Protestant, you hold to these. These define us collectively as a movement. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is our highest authority. You and I do not look to the papacy 
to tell us what to believe. We look to the Bible. Number two, sola fide. We're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. You and I believe. We can't save ourselves. Our faith in the Lord saves us because of sola gratia. It's God's grace alone. And then solus Christus, Jesus alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Now, I want you to note this. Scripture is the issue of authority, but sola fide, sola gratia, sola Christus all have to do with what we call the doctrine of salvation or soteriology, which was the core issue in the 16th century. How are we saved? How are we saved? And what the Protestants said was the Roman Catholic tradition of faith and works and going to Mass and spending time in purgatory, no, that's all unbiblical because Scripture's our authority. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone because of His grace alone. And then it's all for the glory of God alone. So the solas are the first great, great, great contribution. And the second, and I want to stress this for a moment, is what I consider to be a realistic version of Christian spirituality. So let me unpack this for a moment. All the reformers, all of them, no exceptions, saw conflict, contention, trial, testing, and assault as part of the Christian life. And that's because all of them were under threat for their lives, their entire lives, from the Roman Catholics. But they also saw this spiritually. Luther himself, and he articulated this brilliantly, it's what he called infectum. It was spiritual attacks that involved bouts of dread, despair, anxiety, and churning rages within the individual soul, and then also out in the world between God and Satan. In other words, it was spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare, internally and externally. The Christian life is a life of conflict. Now, the reason I like this is because, and, and I'm trying not to be negative here, just descriptive, but that stands in contrast to some, and I want to stress that, some contemporary views which portray the Christian life as kind of an opiate designed to soothe the pain of life or as an aid to self-enhancement or as a means to personal fulfillment. The reformers, if they showed up today and they looked at some, once again, not painting with a large brush here, I'm trying to paint a narrow corner, if they looked at some elements of contemporary Protestant Christianity in America, they'd say, what? you got to be kidding. God's not trying to make your life easy. God's trying to make you holy. And yeah, you're going to suffer. Look, Jesus suffered. The apostles suffered. The reformers suffered. Yeah, they'd say, look, that's just part of the Christian life. You have to trust God and process your way through that. Now, I, I happen to like that, not because I like pain, not because I'm masochistic. I'm not. I don't like pain, and I'm not masochistic. But you know what? I suffer from anxiety. And I'm thinking, well, if I was really spiritual, Philippians 4. I shouldn't be anxious about anything. And yet, you know, then I read 2 Corinthians 1, other portions of 2 Corinthians, Paul's pretty anxious. He liked to portray the ideal, but he was a real person who suffered from anxiety. Paul had a lot of suffering. So I, I like the fact that the reformers say, you know what, this is how life is, and this is how the Christian life is. Uh, here's the impact. The Reformation 16th century changed the direction of Christianity reoriented all of Western civilization, and it helped shape a lot of elements of the modern world. You cannot, you cannot understand North American civilization, the church, or global Christianity today in 2017 without an awareness of the impact of the Reformation. Now, I ran over, I'm sorry, but we have another session that I'll try to tighten up couple of questions, comments, and then I think we're going to... Do you want to come up and do this, and then we're going to take a break or whatever? So. Is this on? Okay, great. Uh, that was a lot, right, to, uh, to process. Hopefully you got some notes. But any kind of questions, we've got Dr. Winnick here with us, obviously an expert in this stuff. So any other questions, clarifications, comments that you guys have on the Reformation? Josh. I'm going to get to that next hour, and, and I'm going to give you what my opinion is, and I'll just be honest with you. That's my opinion, okay? But I'll get to that next hour. Cool. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm going to get to that next hour too. But yeah, that's a great. These are great questions, both of them. Yeah, yeah. Jacob. Well, it was decided by the church, but you have to understand the church hierarchy. If I could take a complex system and simplify it as best as possible. The Pope's at the top, you have the Cardinal College of Cardinals underneath the papacy. And then at more local levels, and by local levels meaning entire countries, whether it was England or France or Spain or, or portions of Germany or Italy, you had major areas, large areas broken into what they called archbishoprics, and you would have an archbishop over this area, and there would be a number of bishops over dioceses over each of those. And then under each of those bishops, and depending on the diocese, they usually had a cathedral within the diocese. There would be canon clergy in the in the cathedral who ran the clerg or ran the cathedral. And then you would have parish priests, and the priests generally were appointed by the bishop of the diocese. Generally, now there was interaction between all the levels of the church, and oftentimes, especially in the late medieval era between what you and I today, for lack of a better term, would call lay leadership or local lords who had influence over the parish churches. And that's where the simony thing came in. If rich families got control of what they called uh, the resources of the church, they could sometimes buy the parish for a family member, which created all kinds of problems. Because then the question is, who's in charge, laity or, or clergy? But it was overall, that's the way the system was designed to work. Now, hear me well, hear me well. I'm never, ever going to become a Roman Catholic. It's never going to happen. I can't sign off on papal infallibility. I can't sign off on the Immaculate Conception of Mary. I really can't sign off on transubstantiation. There's a lot of things about Roman Catholicism. I just go, what? Having said that, they say they've been around for 2,000 years. I'm going to say, historically, they've been around about 1,600 years, and they ain't going anywhere, and they've stood down totalitarian dictatorships. So there's things about them institutionally I really admire, and I'll come back and talk about that. Does that help a little bit? Yes. <laughs> well, some, some, like in the Lutheran tradition, they kind of kept the church system in place, but just changed it from the papacy to Protestants. So you, it, it, like even in Lutheranism today, they have dioceses with bishops who appoint local pastors over local parishes. So they kept the system. The Anglican system's still the same. They don't report to the papacy, but you have an Archbishop of York in the north and the Archbishop of Canterbury in the south. They have dioceses throughout England, and they still appoint parish priests in local Anglican parishes. And then that system was translated to the United States in Episcopalianism. Now, we are part of this church and the church that my wife and I attend. We're part of the Reformed tradition, which we call more the free church movement, where we kind of got rid of all of that. Yeah. Kyle. Well, for, just for the sake of communication, I was obviously generalizing, but I think it's a fairly accurate generalization. I would say from the late 8th century up through the 16th, even into the 17th century, uh, what I described as the nature of church, especially within Roman Catholic areas, that's how church was done. Even after the Reformation, now the Roman Catholics had their own Reformation in the 16th century. We call it the Catholic or Counter-Reformation, where they really tried to clean things up and improve things and, you know, readjust things, which they did to some degree. But that system started back in what we might call the end of the early Middle Ages. And actually, the, the individual that was most prominent in the creation of what we call Christian 
or Christendom and the Christian society was Charlemagne. And Charlemagne was around from the late seventh to the early or the late eighth to the early ninth century. And Charlemagne was a great Christian king. I mean, he was a really strong Christian, and he wanted to create this Christian society. And he got all these clergy around him, and they, they did. They started what we call the Christian society, and it developed out from there. But he's the one that created the system that I somewhat described at the parish level. Michelle. Here's one of the great things about church history, and here's one of the challenging things about church history. It's kind of a double-edged sword. It's very complex very early on. <laughs> so what I would argue is this. When you read the New Testament, what you have going on, and I'll try to simplify this. Let's just take the book of Acts and some of the letters to make the point. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch, which, by the way, a little caveat, that's a way underestimated church in the New Testament. It was a great church. And they go, to, they go to Cyprus, and then they go up there to what today we call Turkey, and they go up into the hinterlands of Turkey, which they called Galatia. And they go to Iconium, and they go to Pisidian Antioch, and they go to Lystra and Derby. Um, I've been up there in those places. We have a trip every other year that Denver Seminary takes, and I, I got to go there in 01. They rode donkeys up there, walked up there, and we went up there by bus, and it still took us like five days. Anyway, they went up there, and they went to those cities, and those were all major Roman cities. They were really, really well-developed. And they go into the synagogue, and you can, even today, you can go into Pisidian Antioch, and you can stand in the excavation of the synagogue there where Paul and Barnabas preached. And they preached the gospel, and they won people to Christ, and so they pulled these people out, and they formed ecclesia, churches. And they appointed elders, and I think deacons and deaconesses. That's kind of how I read the New Testament. So they had leadership, and they went back and visited. Well, as that system developed over about two or three decades, eventually, though, before the end of what we would call the New Testament era, 70, 80, 90 AD, you have Paul now appointing people like Titus and Timothy to go to Ephesus or Crete and deal with the local church systems there. Now, Paul's the apostle, probably started those churches, and they have parish churches with pastors, elders, deacons, deaconesses. What are Timothy and Titus? They're not apostles, but they're not like local church pastors. Well, they're apostolic delegates. Well, what happens very quickly is the church, by the end of the first century, and this is the point I always try to make in church history, by the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, in the empire to the west, and even as Christianity goes east, and it went east pretty fast, you have the development of a structure that's Episcopal. Bishops overseeing dioceses with local pastors over local churches. The reason I think they did that was it reflected the administrative structure of both the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire in the east. In other words, here's one of the things about Christianity that's great, and I mean this. Christianity is designed to become indigenous with any group of people at any time in any place. And by indigenous, I mean go in, preach the gospel, win people to faith, begin to disciple them, and then set up systems that reflect what will work functionally in that culture. And I think that's what they did. That's why they developed these systems. Now, the theology piece developed out over time, both directions, east and west. But to answer your question, and I'm kind of going about this in a long way, I would argue it wasn't until about the 5th or 6th or 7th centuries that the theology began to really shift in some significant ways that laid the foundations theologically for what today we would call Roman Catholic theology. So just to make the point at two levels, there were two great popes in the late classical early medieval era, Leo I and Gregory the Great. They're great leaders, great popes. They did a lot of great things. They really saved the church in a lot of ways. I admire them for their leadership, their pastoral care, but they started to create these doctrines that I think that I look at and I'm thinking, that's the beginning of Roman Catholic doctrine. Like, Gregory started to put 
communicate the idea of purgatory, and, and he really built it out. And I think the reason he did that was for pastoral reasons. He went to the New Testament, and he found certain texts, and he says, well, listen, most of the people I know aren't really great saints, but they're not these horrible sinners. They shouldn't all go to hell for all time. So let's create kind of a middle holding tank where they'll be purged and they'll do penance, and then eventually God in his grace will let them into heaven. And, and I think he believed that, and I think he would say it's because God's gracious, but he can't, he can't just get rid of everybody's sin like that. And these, Because he's dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people who are unlike you, and I mean this, they're unlike you. They're not educated. They have short lives that are really hard. He loves them. He's trying to be their pastor, and he wants them to be saved. But he realizes, do they really have faith in Jesus at this point? Well, I don't want you to go to hell, because hell's horrible. And he believed in hell. So we'll put you in purgatory. We'll let you suffer for 10,000 years. Then you can go to hell. And it's designed as a system of salvation. And that's where some of that starts. But then it develops over time. Now, here's what a lot of Protestants think. From the time of Augustine, who's my favorite in church history, in the late 5th century, or early 5th century, from the time of Augustine until Luther, there were no Christians. That's not true. That's not true. But what Christianity looks like in the Middle Ages looks really different than our Christianity because of this. Because the Reformation. We are in the Reformation tradition. Did that help answer your question at all? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, Jesus. Well, they, they viewed the priest as the person who, and, and I think you could take this to the high Middle Ages, so let's say about the 10th century. I think we could argue that. By the 10th century, the priest becomes the person who performs the Mass on your behalf. So you're looking to God, but without the Mass and your participation in the Mass by you participating in the cup, sometimes the bread, you can't receive grace because grace comes through the church and the priest is the key person who performs the Mass. So he doesn't save you, but without the Mass, you can't be saved or you can't receive grace. I think that's close to answering your question. I'd say the 9th or 10th centuries, that's when that system really began to be implemented across the board. That's a great question. Josh. Yeah. Right. All four of these strains of the Reformation would have really began to stress the role, practice, and personal Holy Spirit. Now, they would have done it in different sorts of ways. But, I mean, if you read Luther, he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. Calvin certainly would talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Cranmer maybe less so, but when you get into the later Puritans, and they're the descendants theologically of Cranmer, they talk a lot about the Spirit as well. So I would say, to answer your question, a lot of that comes out just out of the basics of Reformation theology. Because they're all Trinitarians, strongly. Strong. Let's do one more, Isaac. How did they... Well, they, they would argue, obviously, that God's triune and that the Spirit is at work. The issue, though, in the Middle Ages, and this is part of what I was trying to communicate about the Reformation, is the nature of salvation had to do with the nature of the church. Uh, by, oh, without question, by the 14th century, the Roman Catholic Church taught in totality that grace comes to the faithful but it only comes to the faithful inside the church through the mechanisms of the church, the seven sacraments, the most important of which was participation in the Mass. So you would get grace, 
but it was through the mass particularly participating you know, in that. So the Holy Spirit was part of that, but it was in the sense that He is calling His people together to be part of this church to receive salvation through this mechanism called the church. Now, one of the, and I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here, one of the great upsides of Roman Catholicism is it's ecclesiology. One of the downsides of Protestantism, and I'm getting ahead of myself to answer your question, let me just speak bluntly. We suck at ecclesiology. And part of it's because of the Reformation. They didn't mean for that to happen. All the reformers had really strong ecclesiologies. But because of what happened, our ecclesiology is really weak. It is. It's really weak. That's I'm, the I'm study of the church, by yes. the way, uh -huh. is ecclesiology. Yeah. No, you're fine. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Don't mean to be using seminary words here. You're yeah. welcome yeah. to do that. Okay. All right, well, let's take a five-minute break, and then we'll get back together. Thank you for listening to The Well Podcast. For resources and information on how you can support our mission to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, please visit us online at www.boulderwell.org.